Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 94, Defying the Odds. Last time, the two Italian cruiser formations had turned back for home, having not struck at the enfeebled remains of the convoy pedestal because they didn't have fighter protection. Yet, as Rear Admiral Burrow did not know of this, he ordered the escorts, in whatever shape they were in, to the front of the line of the British ships. It would be their job to engage the waiting Italian surface ships, which would, hopefully, allow their merchantmen to get by. And what there was available for protection was reason for further despair. At the front of the line, as the sun rose on August 13th, were only three of the mine-sweeping destroyers, and they had already been at the fore. But joining them early that day was the damaged Kenya with its 6-inch guns and the Charybdis with its even smaller 4.5-inch guns. The remaining escorts were scattered along the convoy line. Behind the front line of warships was the main body of civilian vessels, the Melbourne Star, Waramara, and Rochester Castle. Some five miles behind these ships were the Leadbury and the tanker Ohio. Behind them, somewhere astern, was the Penn, protecting Port Chalmers. Yet not moving was the Brahmin, as it monitored the abandoned Santa Elisa. When Rear Admiral Burrell had not as yet heard from the light cruiser Manchester, when word came to him that the Italian service fleet had turned around, he sent the Eskimo and Somali to find her. As for the merchantman Dorset, she was to the north of the other's path, and as she was alone, her Captain Tuckett decided his best chance, though not a very good one, was to simply speed away alone and finish off the last 100 miles of the journey. His best hope, and that's all it was, was that an RAF plane would soon spot them and then signal for further protection. Yet if Tuckett saw a plane that day, the chances were strong that it was one of the Luftwaffe. The reason for this is that, with the Italian cruisers having turned round, the German air formations were free once again to go hunting. And simply, their goal that day was to finish off pedestal. Climbing into their bombers and fighters before sunrise, the Germans had a pretty good idea of where most of the remaining British ships were. And having this knowledge, it was time for them to get to work. Their first self-imposed task was to finish off the Santa Elisa before anyone could try to get her underway again. This was carried out by a single bomb from a JU-88 bomber around 6 a.m. As fire and secondary explosions ruined the ship, the Brahman was now free to move. Pouring on the speed, the Brahman caught up to the pen. Around 8 a.m., the main body of the convoy was discovered, about 30 miles south-southeast of Pantelleria, so set upon by 12 Ju-88s. Normally at this point, the fighter control ship, or ships, would have directed the RAF to those ships about to be attacked. Yet that ship was now under the sea. As such, RAF patrols, who did their best to find their wards, were unable to. Hence, the German attack only had to deal with the various guns of the escorts and the merchantmen. 
Later, Rear Admiral Burrow would write that during the night before, he had his flag lieutenant attempt to put something together that could make contact with the planes. But as they received signals on the VHS, or very high frequency, the odds were against them. Still, it was tried, but the best the lieutenant could do was make contact with the Charybdis. As the German attack came, the majority of the remaining ships were in a line. The Rochester Castle in front, followed by the Weimarama, the Melbourne Star, and then the Ohio. As for the Port Chalmers, that had yet to catch up. Being the sole tanker, the Ohio received most of the Germans' attention, as some of them started their descent from 6,000 feet, but others, more daring, started theirs as low as 2,000. And though the ship's guns couldn't threaten the attackers like a fighter could, they were about to make the Germans' attack approach a grueling one. The result being the Ohio, now more pockmarked than before the attack, with water splinter damage, remained afloat. As for the Wormarama, she was less fortunate. With most of the guns trailing the planes going after the Ohio, three of the German bombers went after the cargo ship. The first bomber to descend missed completely, as the AA fire was fairly accurate, exploding in front of the pilot's face. However, that left the second bomber unmolested. Coming in, five explosives were dropped. Four hit their target dead on. At the moment, the ship was doing 13 and a half knots, when all four bombs hit, all near the bridge. Located amidship, the bridge simply disappeared in the explosion, as if the vessel had been scalped. The tin cans stored elsewhere, full of petrol below, ignited, which set the entire top of the ship in flames. Within seconds, the masts collapsed, falling into the space the bridge had been. Within seconds, the Waramara listed to starboard, then righted herself, but then went straight down. All that was left on the waves where the ship had been was a spot of burning petrol and smoke. Not that it helped the crew of the doomed ship, but the third bomber was caught within the shooting flame and itself disappeared into the sea. Right away the Ledbury raced over to where the merchantmen had been and lowered boats to look for survivors, and there were a few. Of the officers, all were lost, except for third wireless operator Jay Jackson. As for the crew, 32 were pulled from the water. This left 87 men who would never make it to Malta. Astoundingly, the Ledbury charged into the flame-covered waves no less than four times, and those watching just knew she would not emerge. But she did, each time with rescued men. As for the Melbourne Star, because of her proximity to the Warumara, she found herself sailing straight through the place where her sister ship went down. With flames all around it, the paint from the Melbourne started to peel off the metal. The lifeboats all caught flame. The captain of Melbourne, McFarlane, ordered the crew to be ready to abandon ship in case their contents caught on fire. This, of course, would mean jumping directly into the fired cover waves but their chances of surviving were certainly better than staying on board. 
As for the Ohio just behind the Melbourne star, she had a few more seconds of reaction time, so missed the worst of the flames, turning hard to port. Still, for a few seconds, it seemed as if the flames would find their way aboard her as well. Some distance to the north, Captain Tuckett of the Dorset heard the explosion and so turned in that direction. His added might to the obvious fight ahead might not be much, but he was determined to help out. Soon the Dorset rejoined the remainder of Pedestal. The various ships had little time to mourn the loss, as other waves of German aircraft were already in the air. To be sure, the RAF, in the form of four bowfighters of 248 Squadron, had been in the air since first light, seeking to locate Pedestal, but was unable to find her. Their goal had been to protect the ships from the moment they located them to within 100 miles of Malta. Then the Spitfires would take over. But the bowfighters were still looking around. However, the British planes would do better in the afternoon. As Pedestal was about 120 miles or 193 kilometers from Malta's western shore, midway between Pantelleria and Malta, but a little south of a straight line between the two, it was then the Luftwaffe came in, wave after wave, as the ships were in such proximity to Sicily. But by then, the RAF, led by Wing Commander T.D. Miller and Command Navigator Squadron Leader Addington, had finally found their charges. But that, of course, was only after the first attack. Between 8.10 and 8.42, 26 JU-88s were sent up to attack the ships, though not all of them made contact due to the protection from above. At 9 a.m., 16 more bombers lifted off from Sicily, protected by Maquis 202 fighters. Soon after, as the bombers spread out to locate the ships, eight of them made contact. Yet overhead, this time in better shape, was the RAF. In the ensuing dogfights, both sides made exaggerated claims. Yet, as best as can be told, each side lost a plane. However, as the adversary fighters were dueling it out in the skies, the eight bombers swooped down on their targets. It will come as no surprise that the German pilots, seeking glory and to fulfill their orders, mainly focused on the Ohio. Yet the destroyer Ashanti, staying in close with the tanker, hoped to provide an adequate AA umbrella. One of its more effective early con guns was aft next to the death charges. The British had figured out long ago that the Germans liked to come in very steep, from many different angles, at the same time to negate the gunners focusing on just one or two planes. Yet the addition of a rear gun had proven effective, time and again, as it did now, of spoiling the German surprise. Later, Rear Admiral Burrow would describe this particular attack as the most vicious, the Stukas dove down, one 500-pound bomb just missing the Ohio's bow. Still, some compartments were flooded, and several of her plates buckled. But the American-made vessel continued on through this latest splinter damage. One attacker, hit during his dive, disappeared as his plane disintegrated on its way down.
Another bomber was hit as well, dead on, by a 20mm shell. Probably more than one. But its momentum kept it coming at the tanker. It hit the water's surface, bounced, and then rammed into the ship, causing more damage and flooding. Soon flames and smoke could be seen, but the tanker's crew remained calm and attacked the flames. Still, one of their guns had been twisted by the ramming bomber, now hanging on by shreds of metal. During the confusion, one gunner trained his sights on a supposed escort and pulled the trigger. Within seconds, one of the few spitfires from Malta went down in flames. The pilot was lost as well. Soon after this attack, another wave of JU-88s dove down. Coming straight at the convoy from ahead, 20 bombers picked their various targets, with the tanker again getting most of the attention. One particular bomber, aiming for the Ohio, was hit on her approach. She turned upside down, descended, hit the water, bounced, and then skidded into the tanker. Fortunately for those on board, the fighter had already jettisoned its bombs. Ironically, the ensuing explosions put out the fire amid the boilers. Yet, with this latest battle damage, the lights of Ohio's engine room went out. Emergency lights soon came on, but the tanker slowed to a stop. The rest of the convoy moved on. The next raid, this time by the Italians, came at 11.20, consisting of 12 SM-79 torpedo bombers, protected by 14 MC-202 fighters. The fighters engaged the Spitfires, while the bombers went after the ships. Yet this was not how it was supposed to go for the defending British airmen, but as they were outnumbered, it was only prudent not to ignore their Italian counterparts, the fighters coming at them. One bomber lost his nerve, having Spitfires in such proximity, and one can hardly blame the pilot, so dumped his torpedoes far off and turned away. Yet the rest were game and came at the vessels below. As for the crews below, specifically the gunners, they were by now beyond fatigued. Commander Gibbs of the destroyer Pathfinder was equally depleted, but he could do something about it. Probably with less self-control than he would ever admit, the commander snapped, having to deal with one raid after another. So he ordered his vessel to turn north, or seaward, into the oncoming planes. He yelled an order for 30 knots, and it was complied with. By now, the torpedo bombers were no higher than the ship's mast. The two sides came at each other, the distance between them being quickly eaten up by their speed. Just before the Italians came into gun range, the captain ordered all guns to open fire and not let up. This last part was not needed, but Gibbs had something specific in mind. When the planes were almost within spitting distance of the Pathfinder, they let loose their torpedoes. But by this time, the entire Italian formation had shell bursts around it, as well as tracer bullets. The result of this intensity, this physical manifestation of the crew's anger and fear, was that the bomber's fish were being dropped in many different directions, yet none directly at the ships of pedestal. Not one ship had to demonstratively alter course. 
One bomber caught fire, yet no one had the satisfaction of watching it go down. Still, the gunner's job was done. However, with so many torpedoes in the water, the situation was still dangerous, and it was the Port Chalmers who had to deal with the repercussions. One of the torpedoes went behind the civilian vessel, yet it got caught up in the ship's starboard power vane, a device towed behind the boat so that the cable to which it was attached could cut the moorings of a submerged mine. Suddenly, Captain Pinckney of the Port Chalmers was dragging a live explosive. If he slowed down or turned to one side or the other, the fish might swing around and make contact with the side, and as it was designed to, then explode. This hairy situation shook the commander's nerves, never having dealt with something like this before. But then remembering the escorts, he flashed a signal to them, asking for advice. Advice quickly came back to the captain to cut his power vane wire and swing hard over. This liked the captain not, but it seemed his only option. So he let loose his clump chain, which all civilians know as the knotted metal chain used for mooring. This caused the torpedo to fall away, but only minutes later the torpedo exploded. The port chalmers was safe, but the crew still felt a slight lift in their ship. With the excitement behind them, a message from the Dorset, it had been calling all along, came to the convoy. On one of the earlier bombing attacks, one explosive hit just aft of the ship, rupturing the number four hold and caused a fire there, and flooded the engine room. As the number four was next to a hold that held high octane, it was imperative to put the fire out. Yet the electric pumps wouldn't work as electricity had been interrupted. There was nothing for it. The door set had to be abandoned before the fire spread. As had become the norm, the plan was to set scuttling charges and then leave. But due to a miscommunication, the charges were not retrieved from the flooded part of the ship. It was too late now. The door set would be left unmanned, burning, but still intact. Manning the lifeboats, the crew lowered them down and climbed aboard. The men got away and would be picked up by the destroyer Brahmin, but it was a sad crew that rowed away from their ship, having survived up until this moment. As for the Axis planes above, they had just scored another success, but didn't know of it at first. The Rochester Castle had been further damaged during the 8 a.m. attack, and again during the 10 a.m. attack, but it was the latter that crippled the vessel. Though the Germans had missed Barely, with their bombs, three explosives had gone under the Rochester when they detonated. The explosions literally lifted the ship out of the water, which then landed hard. The engines were shaken out of place and fires were started. As for the fires, there was nothing to do but flood the compartments to douse the flames. The engine crew went to work, as best they could, to get the engines running again. Once they were underway, the captain was then told the steering mechanism had been damaged. By the time that was patched together, the Rochester had taken on 4,000 tons of water, which made controlling the vessel a nightmare, even if the steering had worked flawlessly. By now, the destroyers Penn and Ledbury had been sent back to check on the vital Ohio. The Brahmin was busy rescuing the crew of the Dorset. 
This left the remaining escorts to protect the three leading merchantmen, the Port Chalmers, with its engines barely holding on, the Rochester Castle, with enough water within it to house an impressive aquarium, and the Melbourne Star, itself also pockmarked with splinter damage. Yet their nightmare was at the beginning of its end, as Malta came into sight at 4 p.m. To be sure, the Axis bombers came back again that afternoon, but by now these three ships were being protected by fighters from Malta. There would be no more successful attacks that day on them, as the RAF pilots were determined not to let the enemy near the ships, which held the means for the people of Malta to stay in the fight. To add to the protection of the three remaining ships, the Malta escort force joined the incoming vessels around 2.30 p.m. An hour and a half later, as stated previously, the lead vessel spotted the island of Malta. The worst was behind these first three surviving ships. The rest were somewhere behind them and still in grave danger. And just before 6.30 p.m. on August 13th, the three merchantmen entered Valletta Harbor on the island's east coast. The Maltese people, upon seeing them, screamed and waved their hands in greeting and in relief. Three ships, so far, out of the 14 that had started out, were indeed a godsend to the people. Aboard was food, parts for the various war machines, and all a chance to fight back, to keep the island from having to give itself to Rome and Berlin. And yet, without the fuel from the Ohio, somewhere still out there to the west, the contents now entering the harbor meant little. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 95, End of the Line. Last time, three of the remaining merchantmen entered Malta's main harbor on the afternoon of August 13th, which still left three more out there to the west of the island. And as they were the last of Operation Pedestal, the authorities of Malta gave them their full attention. So, too, did the Axis, as did Vichy. As for the cargo ship Dorset and the sinking Ohio, they, at least, had escorts with them. It was the lone Brisbane star that had the least chance of finishing its voyage. With its fore or head weighed down by the flooded number one hold, the ship could only do eight knots. Captain Riley knew this did not bode well for the Brisbane. Sure enough, on the morning of August 13th, a day that would end happily for the Port Chalmers, Rochester Castle, and the Melbourne Star, the lone Brisbane Star was spotted by a medium SM-79 bomber from nearby Sicily. Yet, as the ship was near the coast, it was in French waters. Hence, neither the ship nor the plane could fire on the other without being fired upon first. War's version of a Catch-22. Still, the Italian aircraft, having found the Melbourne and seeing the huge hole in its bow, desperately wanted to finish it off, but first had to somehow get the ship 
to fire on him. Captain Riley told his gunners to stay calm, not to fire unless he ordered it so, which worked well for the Brisbane Star. The Italian pilot circled the ship and then dove down, flying right over the vessel to entice the crew into shooting. But the ship's guns stayed silent. The pilot tried again, and then a third time. The crew below just stared up at the plane overhead. Obtaining the ship's speed and course, the Italian bomber, it must be said, followed the rules of war and sped off to the north. Captain Riley made a note in the ship's log of the pilot's valor. Yet his British liaison officer rejoined with a sarcastic, just wait for the Germans to come along. They would be more focused on success rather than the rules of conduct. Not too long after the Italian bomber left, the Brisbane Star received a call from the Vichy at a nearby port. Being in French waters, Riley could not ignore the call, but pretended not to understand what was being said or what the voice intended. This back and forth went on for a while as Riley ordered the ship to steer slowly towards international waters. After playing his Han Solo to the Vichy's Death Star radio operator, after being asked for his control number, when rescuing Leia, Riley gave up the conversation, but did not shoot his own console. The French did the same. Both radios went quiet. Some hours after leaving the coast, Riley was told that a sub had been spotted. The lookouts couldn't give him a designation, but the sub never attempted to make contact, a worrying point. It's now known that only the Italian sub, Asteria, was in that area. The British subs were too far to the northeast and ordered to submerge at 6 o'clock that morning. Still, the sub, riding the surface, followed the Brisbane Star. As if this was not bad enough, around 5 p.m., a French patrol boat made contact with the Brisbane Star, and again Riley pretended not to understand what was being said to him over the radio. Then the patrol boat let off a warning shot that landed mere yards from his vessel. That Riley understood. Soon, two French officers came on board and instructed the Brisbane Star to follow them back home, as clearly the British vessel had been in their waters. But instead of complying, Riley asked the two men to follow him to his cabin for a quick drink and to discuss the situation. Giving the French officers all the drink they asked for, and then some, it was soon agreed to let the Brisbane go on its way. What's more, one of the crew's more seriously injured men from the torpedo explosion that tore a hole in the ship was given over to the French for treatment and internment. The Brisbane Star, now minus several cupfuls of alcohol, took its battered and bent self onto Malta. That made it four ships in total to complete the journey. As for the Dorset, her crew was already aboard the Brahmin. But the question remained, could the ship be made goable again? From a safe distance, the Brahmin crew watched as several German sorties tried to sink the immobile Dorset. Yet most of the attempts missed. That settled it for Captain Tuckett. He asked to be taken back to see if she was still seaworthy. Joining him was the naval liaison officer, the chief officer, and the engineering officer. Yet, after their examination... It was plain 
the ship would not make the journey to Malta. Fires still raged. The slow speed of the vessel, if they could get it going, would make it an easy target. Around 5.47 p.m. on August 13th, several Ju-88 bombers lifted off and bombed the stubborn Dorset. Yet only one bomb landed. But it was enough to increase the size of the fire on board. Slowly the merchantmen started going down, the stern leading the way. A second bombing run was made at 7 p.m. The Dorset increased its pace to its watery grave. With no charge to look after, the Brahman then increased its speed to look for the Ohio. Yet the destroyer then came under attack from ten German bombers. The Brahman's captain, Lieutenant Baines, was forced to go to 25 knots in an attempt to keep the Germans off of his back. Meanwhile, all of his guns were blazing away. The crew told Baines that there would now seemed to be a race on of what they would run out of first. Fuel or shells. But that was a discussion for later. Their main goal now was to find the Ohio. Meanwhile, the destroyers Eskimo and the Somali, who had picked up the survivors of the Algeria Likes and the Warangi, continued on with their search for survivors. As they came closer to the Tunisian coast, they found debris floating, but scattered. Possibly this was where the Manchester went down. Sure enough, the two tribal-class destroyers found men in lifeboats soon after. Being told to look landward by those they rescued, the sailors also spotted the rest of the Manchester's crew, but they were clearly under the control of the French. Their war was over. Fortunately for these men, their time in an internment camp was short-lived, as their food and quarters were limited in the extreme. Each and every man lost significant weight and strength, but they had survived pedestal. After Commander Luger of the Eskimo was satisfied that he had found all of the survivors, the destroyer laid in a course for Gibraltar. However, Rear Admiral Burrow did not know of this, so sent the Leadbury back to search for the Manchester's crew. Soon enough, the Leadbury was attacked by two Italian torpedo bombers. And though the crew, like every other crew of pedestal, was exhausted, Lieutenant Hill ordered the men to hold off from firing their Erlikon guns until a hit could realistically be expected. The men, with fatigue running through their bodies, complied. The two attackers came closer. Only then did the guns open up, tearing the first aircraft apart. However, this let the second plane successfully release its torpedo. The gunners then switched to this plane, and, like before, it soon splashed into the ocean. As for the torpedo, the Leadbury managed to avoid it, but only by going hard over to the side. It was a near miss. The Leadbury, covering waters already done so by other British vessels near the Tunisian coast, received an angry signal from the French. But Lieutenant Hill not wanting to waste time talking, replied with Italian recognition flags. The French probably knew this was a lie, but now they had a justifiable excuse. The French radio went silent again. Ledbury's ongoing search turned up nothing. What's worse, some of their burn victims they had picked up earlier that day soon died. Their bodies 
covered with canvas, with four-inch armor-piercing shells attached for weight, were slipped over the side. Lieutenant Hill decided to move east to look for the Ohio. The tanker, as we have seen, had suffered extensive damage through numerous near-misses, the result being its engines refused to return to life. The destroyer pen hard by kept a watchful eye out. Still, the tanker's engine crew stuck to it and eventually coaxed the engines to turn over. Soon, the slowly sinking Ohio was doing a respectable 16 knots. If this could be maintained, the ship should manage to make it to port before going completely under. Yet it would not be that easy. Soon enough, the tanker was under attack again. The bombs missed, but the splinter damage completely took out the already shaky engines. The chief engineer told Captain Mason not only was the ship still sinking, but it would not be going anywhere under its own power. What they needed was a tow, but with no tug around, that wasn't going to happen. That's when Lieutenant Commander Swain of the Pen stepped up. He would have his destroyer pull the tanker to Malta. The front section of the tanker was cleared. A chain was rigged up. Of course, during this setup, a single Ju-88 bombed and strafed the two ships. It eventually left, yet there was no doubt it would report their position. With the tow line in place, the pen, a 1,540-ton vessel, set out to pull a 30,000-ton tanker. Not unexpectedly, the pen couldn't even get the Ohio pointed in the right direction, much less make any progress. As the Ohio went around and around, another Ju-88 showed up. It missed the Ohio, but its bombs went underneath the ship before detonating. There now seemed to be a crack or rent of some kind under the ship. So now, if the destroyer tried to pull it again, it might just pull the ship apart. Clearly, they needed two ships, one to pull and the other to set behind the tanker to act as a rudder. But there was only the one destroyer. So the Ohio's crew was taken aboard the pen, the men readied to scuttle the tanker. However, someone suggested waiting a while to see if anyone else showed up. So the men of the tanker went to sleep. They had been up for the last three days. All this while the pen sailed around the Ohio. Not helping the situation very much, though they weren't trying to, the Axis attacked several more times between 3.57 and 5.02 p.m. During that time, 26 Ju-88s, 7 Heinkel 111s, and 5 more German bombers, flown by Italians, attacked the tanker. But also during that time, Malta was able to keep 16 Spitfires flying over for protection, having finally found the all-important tanker. The ensuing dogfights saw the end of three of the Italians' planes, one other Ju-88, and one Bowfighter. The British tried to save their pilot, but he was eventually picked up by the Italians and made a prisoner of war. At 5.40 p.m., the Ohio and the Penn were joined by the minesweeper, Rye, of the Malta Escort Force. Then came the motor launches ML-121 and ML-168, 
Lieutenant Commander Swain of the Pen spoke with Pearson of the Rye, and they decided that, with so much protection for the tanker, it would be best to attempt the rest of the voyage. So, most of the Ohio's crew, along with naval personnel from the destroyer, reboarded the tanker. Yet, it was drawing 38 feet, i.e., the deck was now 38 feet lower than normal. It had a list that was no less than 5 degrees, and its engines were out. But the men were most desirous to get the ship moving. So, the pen and the tanker were lashed together once again. But again, the destroyer could not get anywhere, and any progress made caused the Ohio to turn port side due to its damaged hull. Men were sent below to remove as much of the tanker's rudder as possible. Hopefully, it would no longer pull to one side once it was underway again. Yet, after trying again, the much heavier tanker would only pull the destroyer back into her, almost damaging the pen. So, the rye was added to the cable to help stabilize the injured ship. This, more or less, worked, with both ships pulling. The modified convoy got underway at 6.35 p.m. Going all of four knots was the best that could be done, but they were on the move. Of course, that's when four Ju-88 showed up, somehow getting past the Spitfires above. The planes circled a few times, picking their angles, and then came in. As the three ships were chained together, there wouldn't be any dodging. It was time to find out how much damage these ships could take. One bomb landed just behind the tanker, damaging it even further. But another bomb landed true, making contact with the boilers, wrecking the four. A fire quickly started. One man was trapped by the forward Borfor gun. He, Gunner Brown, soon died of his injuries. By now, the only thing holding Ohio together was its keel underneath. Oh, and the makeshift rudder had just been obliterated. Later that afternoon, the Brahmin, full of Dorset's crew, appeared near the Ohio and offered to take up anti-submarine duty. After another discussion, taking in the latest damage, it was decided to, once again, attempt to tow the tanker to Malta. The rye was put in front with the chain cable, while the pen was to be behind, hoping to stop the unstable craft from swinging wide. At 10.25 p.m. on August 13th, the ragtag group set out. Again, they could only manage four knots. By the end of the daylight of August 13th, the British would only find this out later, the Axis forces in the area had altered their focus from the ships of the convoy to the ships of Force X, the escorts who had been protecting the convoy. For they, like the others before them, would now have to turn around and make their way back west through the Mediterranean. As of 2 p.m. on August 13th, German air patrols kept up with the escorts as they departed from the ships they had been protecting. At roughly the same time, Malta-based RAF fighters covered the remaining ships of pedestal. Three, as we have seen, made port that afternoon, a fourth soon after. As for the Ohio, she was relatively safe from the skies, but probably not from what could be underneath the seas, and most certainly not from her own damaged hull.
for all of the success of the Axis Air and Sea Forces, and there was great rejoicing. It was decided to go after the returning escorts and to look out for any stranded, damaged ships. As such, the Germans sent their last two torpedo boats to look for stragglers, while the Supermarina had their subs near or in Tunisian waters assemble to take on the remains of four sex. The British ships, with the destroyer Intrepid leading the way, had set course due west from Malta and were 12 miles south of the tiny island of Limosa, almost halfway between Malta and the Tunisian coast, when the Italian subs surfaced and received the signal to gather. Throughout the first part of the night of August 13th, the British ships then sailed northwest to Cape Bon, the northern tip of Tunisia, where they again turned west. But it was there, around midnight, where the Italian e-boats were waiting for them. Coming at the e-boats in line was the Intrepid, Ashanti, Kenya, Charybdis, Pathfinder, Icarus, and Fury. The Kenya, detecting something, turned on its searchlights and found the closest e-boat to it. Having its suspicions confirmed, the Kenya's guns let loose. The e-boat Moss 556 retaliated by laying down smoke and turning away. At the same time, the retreating e-boat released two torpedoes, both missed, and then discharged depth charges to further confuse the British. This worked, and the e-boat got away. Meanwhile, the Italian sub Granito received the report of the attempted ambush, so turned to intercept the line of British vessels. It laid in an intercept course at 3.40 a.m. Near the Fratelli Rocks, just above central northern Tunisia's coast, the Granito surfaced to await the oncoming ships, yet they were a lot closer than the Italians wanted. The Granito's skipper let loose two torpedoes, again they both missed, and was about to attack again, but by now the Kenya had sighted the sub as it had shot at the first two vessels in line, and it attempted to ram her. The sub barely got out of the way in time. Having lost the advantage of surprise, the Italian sub dove deep and went silent. The British vessels continued on with their journey. By the next morning, August 14th, the British were clear of the local area. However, as the Italian sub from last night reported its position, German air power would be waiting. Between 7.30 and 9.11 a.m., 17 Ju-88 bombers came at the British ships in three groups. As before, the three groups staggered their attacks to hopefully catch the defenders off guard. The five destroyers were ahead of the two cruisers spread out. But as the light cruiser Kenya was more damaged and the biggest ship, the Germans gave it the most attention. First, three bombers came in to test the defenses of the ships below. Suffice it to say, their response was enough to keep any harm from coming to them. Then came six more bombers, hoping their larger numbers would overwhelm the gunners below. Yet they had no such luck either. Then the last eight came in, hoping, again, the gunners were getting tired and sloppy with their aim. That was not the case, and by the time all the bombers left, 
there was no additional damage to any of the British ships. The next attack started at 10 a.m. and didn't really let up until 1 p.m. The Germans and the Italians came in constant waves with everything they had. High-level bombers, torpedo bombers, dive bombers, circling torpedoes, everything. Again, the Commonwealth crews threw up as much flak and shells as they could, which is why only one attacker scored a direct hit. Having survived so many near misses, the crews were becoming to think of them as nothing at all. But that's when one 500-pound bomb hit the front of the Kenya. Its side armor of the upper deck on its port side was ripped off. Then the bomb exploded under the ship, which did further outer damage. But none of its systems were wrecked. The Kenya, now uglier than before, but even more beautiful in its defiance, continued on. The last air attack, starting at 1 p.m., would bring the largest formation of enemy aircraft that day. Some 37 JU-88s and 5 HE-111s left Sicily on the lookout for the ships. Yet as they, the ships, had turned north to avoid some parachuted mines dropped in front of them, and as the clouds started coming in, the Germans were unable to locate the British vessels. Which was fortunate, as many of the seven ships were running out of shells. Still, Force X had come through its hell. Waiting for it was Vice Admiral Seifert's Force Z in Algerian waters. The two groups met up at 6 p.m. and together headed for Gibraltar, which they reached 24 hours later. Every ship that had escorted Pedestal was in need of repair and refit. But they had done their job. As for the tanker Ohio, however, her story was not over. During the night of August 13th, 14th, the Ohio was towed by the Penn and Rye, yet all they could muster was a four-knot movement. Still, this was better than being stationary, waiting for the sun to rise and for new attacks to be launched. But at 1 a.m., the Rye tried to pour on a little more speed. Whether the tanker's fragile frame could handle this didn't matter. The lines holding her could not the three-inch wire snapped. So a new formation was tried. The pen and Brahmin came alongside the tanker while the rye fastened a ten-inch line from ahead. Yet, now that the massive Ohio had stopped, the forward motion could not be recaptured. It was decided to wait until morning and then try again. The crews got a few hours of rest. Around 4 a.m., the pen came alongside the tanker and was fastened tight, yet the lines broke again. A different configuration was attempted, but the lines broke before the Ohio would move. By this time, the Leadbury appeared, having given up looking for the Manchester. It was decided to put the rye ahead of the tanker, with the Leadbury tied to its aft, to stop it from swinging wide and thus breaking the lines again. The pen stayed away, offering protection. Still, the lines broke before movement could be achieved. Then the minesweeper Speed showed up with three motor launches from Malta. Commander Jerome took charge of getting the tanker underway. But the first questions he asked was, 
was it worth it, and was it possible? Captain Mason went back aboard the Ohio and reported that the ship would probably break in half in about twelve hours, due to the strain placed upon her. So, if they were going to try, it would have to be now. Also, if and when the Ohio split, it was still worth trying to drag her front half to Malta, as that held 75% of her fuel cargo. As the men devised a way to get the tanker underway, the Italians launched another attack at 10.50 a.m. on August 14th. Coming in were five JU-87s, escorted by 20 MC-202s. But still over the group of ships were 16 Spitfires of 229 and 249 squadrons from Malta, as well as a smattering of bow fighters. All of the bombers but one were chased away. That one dropped a 1,000-pound bomb just behind the tanker, further weakening its screws and punching holes in the stern. Now more water rushed into the already water-heavy tanker, which would make towing her that much harder. The Italians, for their trouble, lost one bomber and one fighter. The RAF lost no one. During the fight, which would be the last air attack on the tanker, the Brahman was positioned alongside the tanker and fastened tight to stop her from sinking. Then the pen came along the starboard side and was again tied to Ohio. After the attackers were gone, the Leadbury was tied to the rear of the tanker. Then the Rye, once again, got in front. Yet again, this did not work, so the Leadbury was moved away. Suddenly, unaccountably, the tanker allowed itself to be moved. Water was still coming in, so crews from the various ships were put aboard to pump out the water from the engine rooms. This worked for a while, and the banded-together group got up to five knots. But as the pumps could not remove water faster than was coming in, the lines for the Brahmin gave way. This was around noon on the 14th. But as this had been the most successful they had been, the lines were resecured, and they got underway again, giving up any idea of anything over five knots. To be sure, the Supermarina was still searching for the tanker. The sub Asteria was ordered to go after her, but had to report back that her ability to run an attack had been reduced being itself attacked by a lone British aircraft. The attempt was made by the sub, but she never made contact. Not that it seemed to matter much. Those ships towing Ohio spotted Malta during the late afternoon of August 14th, and they all knew that the last part of the journey, just before heading into the harbor, would require constant course changes to avoid Axis mines. The American vessel was barely handling the strain of being pulled, much less being pulled and making several changes, of course. And to justify the crew's anxiety, during the first turn to port to avoid a mine near Dilimara Point, the southeastern corner of the island, the lines from Ohio broke. As the ships were being reattached, the tug Robust came out to help. Aboard her was the King Harbor's master, who now took charge of the operation. 
Yet when the Robust took over pulling duty, she didn't have the ability to get the tanker moving, which then floated back into the pen, creating a hole in its side, but fortunately above the waterline. The destroyers once again took up their positions on each side of the tanker and secured their lines. Underway again, dusk came as the tanker was pulled up the channel towards Valletta Harbor. But at the moment, radar plots detected something behind the Ohio. Nothing was spotted visually, but just to be safe, the battery guns laid down an intense barrage at the blip's location. Nothing was ever found, but if it was an Italian sub trailing the ships, it couldn't have lasted very long. After the overall situation was considered safe, three tugs came out to help. The Robust, which had tried earlier, as well as the Carbine and the Coronation. Coming to a point where the tanker had to make a turn, everyone got into position and attempted to push. However, the 3,000-ton tanker almost managed to push all of them into a minefield. Only by pushing the engines of every vessel was the tanker wrestled to a safer course. It was slow going. By 8 p.m., the Ohio was only a mile away from its destination. Yet the fear now was, if she should fall apart, not only would the military forces stationed on Malta not receive their fuel, but the massive vessel could block the channel, in essence, doing the access job for them. For the last few hundred yards, the Maltese people lined the shore and cheered. They knew the cargo on board would allow the Commonwealth forces to continue to resist the Axis, who would be unkind towards their latest prisoners who had dared to defy them for so long. It was at this moment the pen had been cast off. It was now the Brahmin steering the tanker with its ever-slowing momentum. Then the Brahmin let go, to be replaced by the Boxel, a naval auxiliary. By now, the tanker's deck was covered with water, which would only get deeper as the Ohio continued to take on water and sink. Still, the Boxel did her job. The tanker was slid into place, which allowed Dockman to tie her firm, but this would only slow down her descent. Meanwhile, other crewmen brought pipes and pumps on board to begin the transfer of fuel to storage tanks. This was a race of a different type. The fuel up front was sucked out first, which left the aft section to continue to sink. To everyone involved, it only seemed a matter of when the large vessel would break in half, as the aft got heavier and the fore got lighter, but still overall, the tanker kept sinking. As the fuel was taken out, the water continued to rush in, The men had to make sure more pipe was available as more of the ship continued to disappear under the water to get the last few drops of the vital fuel out, and their timing was perfect. As the last bit of fuel was taken out, the Ohio settled on the harbor's bottom. Technically, Operation Pedestal was over. Out of the original 12 merchantmen and the tanker, Only five ships completed the journey, 
This gave the civilians and military men on Malta some 32,000 tons of supplies. And, of course, the vital fuel. Malta could go on to defend itself and harass any shipments being sent to North Africa for those forces trying to take Egypt. Later, the Ohio would be dragged to another part of the harbor to be out of the way. It was then she broke into two. As for the war in the Mediterranean, that would go on, but overall the Royal Navy was hurting from the results of pedestal. Not only were the Eagle, Manchester, Cairo, and Foresight lost, but the indomitable Nigeria, Kenya, Ethereal, Wolverine, and Penn be out of the fight for some time under repairs. As for the experienced seamen, either of the merchant seamen or the Royal Navy, somewhere between 300 and 350 were lost, which was a higher figure than those lost during the disastrous PQ-17 convoy, which tried to get supplies to allied Russia. As the Italians had lost significantly fewer ships and caused so much damage, they claimed a major victory. But the truth was, Malta was still defiant. As for the two Italian cruisers damaged during pedestal, they would both be destroyed in dock, undergoing repairs. No, it would be the British vessels that would be repaired in a timely manner and go on to give good service to their country. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, that's it for the membership episodes of 2016. Again, thank you for listening. Again and again, thank you for supporting the show. I really do appreciate it. Uh, It makes, again, all the time I spend on this uh, justifiable to the wife. So, um, just to let you guys know, no one else knows this, the next regular episode will be out, I think, on the 12th, January 12th. And what we're going to do to give me more time to cover the Stalin bio is do a little bit of jump back, and we're going to cover the Battle of the Atlantic and then build up to what happens in Pearl Harbor with all the politics and everything else going on. By then, I should be finished with uh, Stalin, getting him caught up, and then we will jump into Pearl Harbor and stay with that for a while. Then I'll try to figure out a way to balance out telling the two stories, the Pacific and Europe. Um, Honestly, I don't know how I'm going to do that yet. If anybody's got any ideas, please please email me at uh, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear it. Uh, I've been dreading this, but eventually the time has come, and I just got to figure out how to do it. But again, just thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you all have a great and safe 2017. And as always, take care, everyone.